Welcome to the Elevate Purpose podcast, which is all about learning from the people working to solve the world's most important challenges. I'm Michael Slaby from Timshell. All right, thanks for joining us today. Um, today we're speaking with Nell Derek Depavoice, um, who is the founder of Inspiring Capital, um, uh, which I'll let her describe exactly what it is. Uh, but it's playing an amazing part in pushing forward the conversation around purpose and meaning in careers uh, and, and really challenging some of our long-held expectations around how we think about jobs, how we think about meaning, the relationship between purpose and profits, and a whole bunch of conversations that I think are really important right now. So thanks for being with us. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, let's, I'd be curious to just start out with a little bit of your own story, which is not I don't, I don't know that anybody would describe it as typical in terms of the way <laughs> coming into the space that you're in now through the window of sort of youth nonprofits. So tell us a little bit about how you got where you are. Totally. Um, so well, we're going to start where I, when I was 12. Hope you have all day. All this day. was the three hour, right? Three yeah. hour session. As awesome. As okay, so get the comfy. Battery, the battery will die eventually. Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll talk a little quicker. So I grew up at this amazing urban elementary school, right? Everything you kind of would like to think about American education, right? This diverse class, really engaged parents, great array of enrichment programs and extracurriculars. It's a very, very cool place in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, at my sixth grade graduation, which is kind of a big deal because a lot of kids will not graduate from 12th grade, and so they make a big fuss about sixth grade, I would have headed to a very unromantic city middle school that looks more like the situation on The Wire, if you know that TV show about Baltimore. Not pretty, right? Drugs, teenage pregnancy, like in middle school, not just high school. Mm -hmm. Gangs, atrocious academics, obviously. And so, you know, my parents were like, oh, that's not the path. We can either pay for tuition or we can move to another town. 12-year-old economics thought that paying for tuition sounded really exclusive and elite, and so you guys should just buy a new house. Makes total sense. Total sense. Totally economic. <laughs> like, no no brainer, right? Easy. <laughs> so, thankfully, they did have the financial wherewithal to buy a house, and we moved about 600 yards into West Hartford, Connecticut, which is a nice, leafy suburb with incredible public schools, you know, top in Connecticut, which is no small feat. Um, and so I went through amazing AP programs, on to Harvard, and, and the rest is history. But um, that very early, very visceral experience with this so-called zip code problem right. um, helped me at 13 or so, decide that I would pursue some kind of a career fixing education. I think it's pretty cool that your parents, well, that you were, they were ready to involve you in that conversation. I, yeah, I may have been a slightly precocious 12-year-old. Uh, yeah. I booked I booked most of our vacation houses out of the classified section of the newspaper. Yes. <laughs> Trying to buy some horses also, but that didn't ever happen. <laughs> So anyway, I ended up, uh, you know, I studied psychology always with this focus on education, and but I got the travel bug in college, mm-hmm. and so I was I was keen on living abroad and working internationally. It doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to be in the public education space, so I ended up in youth nonprofits. And now to get slightly more zoned in on your question, I, in those 10 years, worked five years in kind of big international development, right? UN, World Bank type organizations was where I was playing. Um, And the distance that I saw between the money and the power and the problems that that money and power was trying to solve, huge gap, right? And so rarely because of evil (laughs) or ill intent, but simply because of that distance, the lack of understanding and the time wasted and the resources wasted and the efficacy of the solutions was pretty dismal. 
so five years in, I thought, I'll go to business school and see how private markets move money and resources. Um, in the process of applying, I met a private equity investor who said, I have money and I have this building in my hometown, which happened to be in the West Bank of Palestine in the Middle East. I want to help children. Okay. So charming, right? So sure. nice. Such a good deed. Like that is fantastic. Please don't do it right now like that. <laughs> I said, I have a background in learning psychology and child development. Let me go there and see what the needs are. Right. Do some research internationally, find out what that best practice is and, and, and build you a model. Right. Exactly. Let's let's start from somewhere, not from nowhere and an idea. So did that for a few months and fell in love with the community, the challenge, and also the process of building something to fix a need or to, to meet a need. So I ended up staying with that organization for five years. We replicated some of the work to Lebanon, nearly to Egypt, though you may remember some tumult in that region over these years, and so that didn't happen. Um, and we built a really a, a highly functioning community center model, early childhood education, youth leadership for college kids, work with the women, the mothers, basically, of these kids on social and economic development. Cool um, very cool model, not brain rocket science, you know, logical based on best practice, but nothing fancy, um, and got some great feedback from people in really high places, and yet we couldn't harness money to scale. And so again, I hit this wall of the ways that we work, are just, we're doing good work, but the, the financial capital is not there to support its growth. Mm -hmm. And yet everyone's talking about wanting to scale, right. quote unquote. So, so, but not investing in. But not investing in scale <laughs> growth or even the strategic risk yeah. and experimentation to find growable models. Yeah, we see a lot that, that like unwillingness to invest. Like, Scale very rarely means just put more dollars into the same machine, right? Like you have to invest in infrastructure and other things that a lot of people don't want to invest in. Yep. Right? There's, there's still a big, I think there's a gap in understanding about the, the sort of the way machines expand, the way systems expand that requires infrastructure investment that a lot of people feel like is quote unquote non-programmatic, right? And this, you know, gets us, you know, the, the whole question on what's programmatic and what's not, I think is a, is a really bad conversation. It's a really dangerous conversation in terms of our capacity to have scale. Totally. So it's, you know, of course, talent, yeah. marketing, yeah. strategy work, slowing down a little bit, super important. I think the other really important piece of this, of, of what I saw, is um, low expectations. Interesting. We just don't expect much from the nonprofit sector. We expect them to be teeny, mm -hmm. not super efficient, mm -hmm. and not growable because they haven't been, right? And so you have this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where 90% of 501c3s in the U.S. are under a million dollars of budget. That's tiny, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and, and it's not because they're startups and they just haven't gotten yeah. there. They're, they've fair. topped out, yeah. right? And so I think, you know, we would have conversations with funders where, again, very high-powered people with big resources behind them, that this is just what we need. It's, it's Teach for America. It's Peace Corps. It's in the Middle East. It's women. <laughs> like, right. what more do we need right now? Yeah. I was like, great. Again, not rocket science. Let's find some other hannies who have buildings and money in their towns and roll out this model. Um, and often the response was, ooh, but you're a small organization. To which my answer was like, right, until you give me $5 million, then and then we will start to get bigger. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and so I think that there's just a little bit of disbelief that these models can grow 
not least of which because they haven't been given the oxygen, the working capital to grow. So, and then how did that bring you into the space around sort of this, this question about sort of doing good and doing well, this yeah. question around recrafting the whole idea of career and meaning, right? Like, uh, and you talked about sort of thinking about going to business school. Sort of what was that next step for you? Yeah. So um, there's one more step to the epiphany, uh, and it was business school for me, um, which led to me, again, I had fallen in love with that entrepreneurial journey, building this organization with training wheels, right? I wasn't the founder. I was the founding director. Uh, went to business school, and after that, decided to start my own firm, this time a consulting firm focused on earned income for nonprofits, okay. right? Because I I figured if we can infuse build the profit motive, sustainable revenue models, yeah. and build yeah. our own revenue sources that we can do whatever we want with, including grow, that would be a good thing, right? And so, so I started that in June, um, 2013. Had enough student debt that it was a great idea to go out on my own as an entrepreneur. Makes Super solid. Sense. The MBA taught me that yeah. financial rigor. So that was that was good. good. Yeah, totally. Um, and seems, seems similar to the <laughs> telling your parents to just buy a new house. Right, right. Yeah, the twelve-year-old economics somehow has lasted through. I'm going to talk to my financial planner about that um, when I hire her. Um, and so six months into running this consulting firm, specifically working on earned income for nonprofits, um, we my first employee was a Columbia MBA who I had met through Columbia. Great, amazing woman coming from the hedge fund analytics world, and so very complementary background, some microfinance, and um, so wanted that hybrid career. She said, "Do we want a summer intern?" You know, I said, absolutely, they're great, they're smart, they're subsidized, you've worked out excellently. Uh, and so we put up a posting, this is who we are and what we do, we want a summer associate. 10 days later, we had 72 applicants. Wow. Harvard, Yale, Wharton, Columbia, blah, blah, just unbelievably talented, smart people that wrote unbelievably earnest, real, thoughtful cover letters about why they wanted to do this with us. Um, and so that was the kind of final aha of, wow, if there are that many people of this caliber wanting to do work like this, why not give them the know-how and the skills, demystify this social impact sector, whatever right. that means, right. as it's rapidly changing sure. between CSR and the new versions of that and impact investing, what is that? Right. Foundations. It's a little different based on everybody you talk to in there. And totally. <laughs> and changing every day for all those people. And so we thought, you know, if, if we can train those people, they can do some of the consulting work we were trying to do, which is great, or they can go on their own merry ways right. and, and, and bring practice this spirit and values into all kinds of other places. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so since June 2014, when we ran that first program, we've been refining what is that curriculum, quote unquote, you know, yeah. what is the experience that people need? And how do you see there's there's so much talk, you know, whether it's sort of consumer studies around the way millennials make purchasing decisions relative to purpose or meaning or impact, depending on the language, depending on the study, the way people choose careers, the way people choose jobs. There, there's, there's a lot of talk about meaning and impact relative to recruiting and retention. Mm -hmm. um, what's been your, your sort of right on the front lines with training and teaching grad students coming, like uh, grad school is always in some dimension a transition um, for, for well, even if you go back into the sector you were in, right? You're you're in this sort of transition moment. What's been your perspective on how do you see people's perspectives on careers changing? Yeah, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, again, we have not seen we have seen the same level and, and a growing number of people applying to the programs we're running um, because of that 
approach, I think, to impact mm-hmm. in a very broad way. Right, I think what people, um, and they don't even necessarily, we just had day one uh, a week ago yesterday, and so the learning curve has been very steep. They've just gotten a total fire hose of our view on the world. and, this, and this your summer fellows. Our summer fellows, so 10 MBAs and then nine mostly undergraduates and some other students and professionals. Group of 19, hungry, ambitious, wanting to do this. Um, but really appreciating the, the broad thinking and um, kind of no-nonsense, no-BS approach to what does an impactful career as an accountant look like? Okay. Right? And if, if you feel like, you know what, I love numbers, I like working pretty solo, um, and I really think that corporate, uh, you know, scandals or uh, corruption is a really big problem and I would like to make no Enron ever happen again. And as I work up the partner track at Accenture, let's say, just to take an example, you know, I'm going to mentor, you know, minority candidates and I'm going to do some pro bono work for a nonprofit in my town as an accountant and use those skills. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Right? I, we are not trying to sell anyone on going to be a, a CFO at a teeny nonprofit a in the Bronx. Path. Right? Like a, exactly. Volunteering in a soup kitchen, or like abandoning your career to go to do to do, go, you know, deworm orphans in Somalia is 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 a path. Is a path. And not the path. I mean, one of the things right. we were talking a little bit about the way the way that we talk about success in our culture, particularly in the level you know you're talking about Ivy League MBAs, mm. you know, and, and watching the way recruiting works on campus, right? The the number of paths that are considered valid right around you know you're either going to go into investment banking or, or you know on campus recruiting to big consulting maybe if you're like really outside the box you'll like and you go to Kellogg you'll end up in a marketing job um, you know or maybe you'll do a startup if you're like a real risk taker yeah. um, but that's a relatively narrow set of what success looks like and what I think has been interesting you know as people like Dan Pallotta have pushed hard on you know, the, the way that we reward people for what they're worth working in impact and, and reimagining some of, you know, what impact means, whether that does, does, does your sense of meaning need to come from what you do every day? Mm-hmm. Does, are your skills worth less depending on where you work? Like all these kinds of questions, I feel like not that, I think we have a tendency to sort of mythologize sort of current history in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Like the millennials are really different. It's like, know if that's as true as young people tend to be more idealistic right but what is different is the ability to make tactical decision based on on those ideals and the visibility of the ideals right that like corporate america and small businesses too not just you know large institutions or enterprises are recognizing both the opportunity that they play relative to social impact Mm -hmm. in terms of everything from supply chains to sort of uh, like to, to community you know, corporate foundation work, to alignment of business models with positive impact in communities, yeah. all the way through recruiting is changing. I feel like the, the, the transparency and volume around this conversation feels really different. Yes. Um, and in ways that I, I think are empowering for people, but it's interesting, I'd be curious about your perspective on watching your own fellows mm. and how you know, the 19 that you're working with, how they interact with their classmates who aren't getting this support from you, yeah. who aren't getting, you know, sort of cultivated around this idea that meaning and the things they care about matter. 
and that they don't have to sacrifice those things to advance and build wealth and you know and these kinds of questions that it's not either or yeah how those people go back into their classmates and have probably extremely different experiences with things like on-campus recruiting totally um I'm just curious about like how you've seen your tra trainees, fellows, fellows, yeah, um, evolving relative to their classmates. Yeah. So in the last two summers, inevitably by the end of the summer, um, participants have said I, I had to stop talking about our experience here because my <laughs> friends just hated me. Like they didn't want to hear about it. And so I think it was a record this year. Day five last week, last Friday, we went around and you know what surprised you this week? And more than one person in the room said, yeah, it's been it's gotten really awkward like at dinners with my roommate because we like talk about what we're doing all day and it is night and day, you know. And so. I think the, the big, you know, our, our program has two main elements in the training hours. Uh, one, the first, maybe 30-ish percent of the hours, is really about self-reflection. Who are you? What are you magnificently good at? And what do you care about, right? What, when do you sit on the edge of your seat? When do you get revved up about an issue or a problem? Um, and, and then the second is that mapping of the entire social impact space, right? At least in, yeah. in you can't t talk about everything, but um, you know, yeah, but what does CFR look like? To corporations, to institutions, to NGOs. To Ex and the funders for all of those, exactly, right? So that breadth of options. Um, and I think that that, and then the real talk of what are your loans look like? How much does a marble lobby matter to you, right? Do you want to send your kids to private school or be able to? That's real, right? Sure. And so just own it. Yeah. And that'll change over time and sure. whatever. But but if that's real, recognize it and do what you need to do to get it so that you're not the frustrated CFO turning over every year from one charter school management thing to another because you think it's their problem, not yours, right? We're, we're really big on that kind of self-awareness piece. Um, and, and then find the right fit. You know, it's not perfect. We have big, the, the, the funding problem, the fact of that, yeah. you know, as you called it, that that purpose tax is really messed up, right? Yeah. Like, make no mistake, we are working toward a future in which average salaries are average salaries, regardless of whether you're, quote unquote, doing good or not. Um, so, but it, in the meantime. It still feels like the sort of treating talent as non-programmatic is crippling enough. Um, that like as if programs can run without people, without talent, without right. great people who are dedicated, who are skilled and thoughtful and well trained, and, yeah. and that the more talented those people are, the more effective the programs are going to be. And talent costs money. Yeah. Right. It, and 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 if anything, you know, one of the things that we talk about, you know, is that if anything, your skills are worth more because you're working on something that matters more. Right. right, that like you know, around Tim Shell, you know, we focus a lot on technology and innovation, and mm -hmm. you know the the startup community and and sort of the market for engineers is insane and, and mm. challenging and 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 rewarding people both with a sense of purpose and and a sense of that what they're doing matters at a, mm -hmm. at a sort of a level larger than themselves and working towards a yeah. movement yeah. is one piece, but also their skills aren't less valuable because we're building platforms to empower the UN Refugee Agency. Right. Right? That, right. That we do such a great job leveraging innovation and digital and data for yep. entertainment yep. and for profit. Right. And, and we don't do as good a job as we could, right? We need to, we talk a lot about the choices we make mm -hmm. as, as, as a society around yep. how we leverage these things. Yep. Like we live in this incredible world of abundance, yep. right? And, and yet struggle to solve, and 
we struggle to solve these problems, these big intractable challenges, seemingly intractable challenges, partially because they're really hard. Yeah. And partially because inequality and gaps and deficits and challenges are always going to exist because it's not utopia and the world is complicated. Sure. But it just feels like the choices we make, and the, you know, people talk a lot, you could, you've spent a lot of time thinking about youth and education, mm. you know, the way we pay teachers, right? And, and you know, like the, the examples that always get pushed around are like the differences between athletes and teachers. Right. And, but I think it's instructive of, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about this growing conversation um, around you know, careers of purpose and mm-hmm. what does impact mean to me? What do I care about? What is getting me on the edge of my seat? Yeah. Not a question that like the job fair and an MBA program asks a lot. Nope. But the fact that it is being asked <laughs> yeah. is I hope the start of a new conversation around yeah. what work means, yeah. what meaning means. You know why I think it's gonna start getting asked more and more, which I feel great about as an entrepreneur running my own business, as well as the world <laughs> and the state detail. of our affairs, minor detail, PNL. Um, the, uh, you know, the cost of, so, so what does it mean that people aren't being asked that at work? It means that they show up and maybe they're really motivated right. by what they do because they're smart, high achieving people. That's certainly who we work with, right? And so they can, you know, grind on consulting projects to optimize, you know, a certain soda yeah, company and supply chain and, and, and they do that. pathologically overachieving, so they're going to work hard. Totally. But. but, you know, the number of the cost of worker disengagement in the, country, in the U.S.? So 80% is about the number of workers who rate as disengaged, wow. right? Not kind of neutral, like meh, actively disengaged from the work. 80%. Eight out of 10. Yeah. And if you take the subway in New York, you, you, see, you can count that, right? You're like, uh, yep. Oh, oh, there's one, one, two. Okay, we've got the two right there. The cost of that to companies, depending on the study, is $350 to $500 billion wow. annually. Wow. This is not a nice to have. Right? This is a real, vibrant, red, bottom line cost to companies, right? Yeah. That people are leaving, people are turned over, they're unproductive, they have to retrain, they have to hide, you know. And so that's where I think that people are starting to wake up and they're throwing some stuff at the walls, right? You sure. see more like, CSR. we're going to the soup kitchen, yeah. it's gonna be awesome. It's not, yeah. right? It's something, but it's a star. Right? A star. And, and I think the intention, what we see talking to corporate partners and is is that the intention is good yep. and that the execution is hard yep. right? because many of these organizations weren't set up to be they're set up to be profit engines yeah. and and I think our expanding our idea of what we expect of a company and what we expect of a business model relative yep. to its impact on the community whether that's reinvestment through investment in nonprofits or running their own programs I think that is a cultural shift mm. that we're the conversation we're having is part of that cultural shift. The fact yep. that we're talking about this, right? The fact that I watched, you know, my wife at Northwestern go through this challenge around the recruiting paths and like mm. the narrowness of those paths and the and uh, of sort of what were valid choices. Yep. I think is emblematic of this cultural shift. I think what's challenging for a big corporation is how to do that with authenticity. Right. And how do we know? This is something we spent a lot of time sort of investigating and trying to sort of surface is, yeah. how do we know that, okay, we, we've decided, we've done the work, the self-reflection as a company, as a brand. Yeah. What do we care about? What are we positioned? The same conversation you're having with individuals, company needs to have about sure. itself. What are we 
what are we capable of doing? How can we help solve a problem for the communities that matter to our business, whether those are customers or our supply chain, whatever they are? Yeah. What are we uniquely suited to tackle? And then are we tackling it? Mm -hmm. Right. You start very quickly come up against, and I think this is where there's a lot of like interesting challenges and opportunities for us moving like like closing the gap between like corporate versus social impact just yeah. in, into a world that where impact is just part of how organizations operate yeah. whether it's their focus or not um, is the challenge of knowing whether you're helping mm. right and, and the nonprofit community is sort of in a constant battle around impact analytics attribution metrics measurement and evaluation these are very yeah. hard problems totally. right and if they're hard to measure, they're hard to measure on t the timelines we want. And I think part of the cultural shift here is that companies are willing to see this not as short-term marketing, mm -hmm. but as something that's more foundational. Yeah. It's something that is a five-year, 10-year investment in their people and in their identity as a company. And, yeah. and that's that's a perspective that is you know, very much at odds with sort of the like short-term, quarterly, Wall Street-oriented. Like, For sure thinking but that but that I also think is changing yeah um, and I'm curious about your perspective on which direction is it the answer this is going to be both but like whether you're seeing more more impetus and more motivation more willingness to change being driven by employees demanding mm -hmm. change mm -hmm. and consumers demanding more of their co the companies that they're buying from yep. versus leaders saying mm -hmm. we can be more yeah right um, and where you how you see that play yeah so I'm a really, really stubborn and pragmatic, but a stubborn optimist and so the good news here is that you know I really see us heading toward a utopian or not, but a better future where this just is how business is done. Yeah. And that, to your point, it's not corporate or you're doing good. You know, it's just the way to do business well is with a view toward long-term social and environmental risk, number one, and then two, opportunity for, for growth. Um, and so I think we're heading toward that, which is wonderful. Obviously, it'll take some time. Um, but what needs to happen, I think that the, the fundamental um, gate that opens to let that happen is understanding this world of abundance in which we live, right? Which is different. That's that's mm -hmm. qualitatively, quantitatively different than I think past yeah. realities. And so everyone it's gonna take some time for everyone to wrap their head around that. And then that plays out in companies being better corporate citizens or community members, you know, because we need shoemakers and bankers yep. and lawyers, right? We can't all tutor kids to read and, yep. and cure cancer. We, we need that for a functioning economy. And on the other hand, we need philanthropic funders to offer philanthropy, charitable grants, as well as concessionary debt, as well as real business-minded equity. You know, we, we need all that funding to, to institute these things. And so I think the population breaks down into leaders who get this and understand that it's just their strategic imperative right. to operate this way, whether they're nonprofits, funders, or corporates. Yeah. Um, and then, kind of grassroots, millennials, kids, consumers, right, the public who are like, oh, wait, it feels way better if I buy something that I feel like is not going to make me it. sick or give fish 
breast cancer or any of the other problems that like gross chemical products create um, and a job that I can get behind. I think, and, and I've heard this from several people, that there is right now a bit of a block uh, in the middle of organizations. Interesting. Right, and so middle managers, and I think that this is it's not personal. It's not that Gen Xers are bad people. Um, it's this it's is a function of bad, lifespan. Uh, is this a function of bad and also of bad incentives, though? Totally, you can change it, and and just the bad structure, right? So, what are you doing between thirty-two and forty-two or forty-five? You're often raising young kids. That's really hard and stressful. You're driving a PL or a business line. That's really hard and stressful. Um, and well, so, and how that, much opportunity? To the PL point, though, I think one of the things that there's clearly an opportunity around this is you have people demanding, leaders saying, we need to do this, people at the bottom saying, I want to have this, and you have people in the middle saying, but I can't prove its value. Totally. So you either need to change my metrics, yep. or we need to figure out how to quantify. The ROI of impact, totally right. Which is something we spend a lot of time on, uh, on our intelligence and data team thinking about and, and, and trying to figure out how to help brands connect meaningful investments and impact mm. with meaningful changes in their business. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, you know what we hear a lot is we want to do this. Mm-hmm. We see that it's important. We know that it's important. We know we can be more and better as a as a part of the society around us. Yep. And, our, and we can't prove its value. Right. Um, because, you know, we have shareholders and we have, we are a business yeah. and we need to be profitable. And, you know, buy one, give one things are, are wonderful models for sort of like branding and, and uh, sort of well modeling corporate philanthropy. Uh, but that's a different kind of thing than the more we make, the more good we make. Exactly. And it turns out it's, it's, it's very challenging. And part of it is because this challenge we were talking about around with nonprofits being able to measure whether the impact they're having is mm. real, are they moving the needle, yeah. is taking that extra layer of abstraction saying, how does our investment in this impact lead to reduced customer acquisition costs and increased brand loyalty and um, increased employee retention, customer retention, metrics that we know we can rely on relative yeah. to our PL. And I think that's where, you know, the the people in the middle who have very specific incentives and who are in many ways like really the engine for the business yeah. get squeezed in this sort of challenge of we we know we can do better. We want to do better, but we don't know exactly how. Yep. Um, and I think there's an enormous opportunity there yeah um, to solve that yeah um, so I, I I do too I, I come again that optimism I completely agree and I think uh, I have a strong hypothesis that a lot of it there is the personal reflection piece because I think you know we need to work out metrics and you know better than anyone data is amazing and miraculous these days and, and you can do a lot and that's great right there's so much out there that we can capture that we again haven't been able to capture efficiently and so that's great and I'm so glad that smart people are working on that and spending a lot of resources we will jump in line whenever the answer is cracked um, but I think in the you know there are some things that like what is the value of early childhood education too? We have we actually do have some neurological studies yeah. over twenty years, yeah. right? So so we do know some of these answers. Number one, so let's just use that and, and let that be enough, you know, and get off this obsession well, with data. data I mean, the good, right? right. You're, you're still talking about data. You're just like it's some of this data we know and some of it we don't, and we should use what we know and right. keep making the best decisions we can. Totally. 
But I think if we each, right, if every one of those C-level executives and every one of those mid-level managers did the homework to take the time of when do I feel flow, right? The Csikszentmihalyi yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. research on flow. When when do I feel that? You know, is it when I'm reducing that marginal 0.1% of cost in a supply chain? Or is it when I'm seeing that that factory in our supply chain provides its workers a healthy lunch so that they're working better? Do you see that sort of long-term for companies or for institutions of any kind? Is that a capacity that all, all managers, all leaders need to have? Or is there, and or, is there somebody who's dedicated to like being like a chief purpose officer? Mm, yeah, you know, I think um, it's the, the exciting thing we've learned over the last two years, which is what is leading us now to scale more intentionally, um, is that human nature is pretty profound, right? As, as unique as we all like to fancy ourselves, We're, people are people are people, and so... Everybody seeks me. And everybody seeks meaning, and it's not rocket science. So we work on um, this research that I mentioned earlier that uh, called job crafting. And so it's been, you know, there's a few really bright academics, some at Yale, some at Stanford, and, and other people have adopted it and, and run with it. Um, and so everyone listening, I'll pull it up for you after. There's this video, there are several videos on YouTube, but there is this one of um, a traffic cop. Now when you think of kind of suboptimal jobs, Standing in the middle of rush hour traffic here in New York, you know, directing smog, horns, commuters, like, blah, suboptimal job, really tough. This traffic cop is dancing, right? You might have seen it. He's dancing through traffic. And so these researchers stumbled on this and were like, what are you doing? <laughs> How is this? You should be miserable. Like, what is going on? And, and so this guy said, every day I'm responsible for 30,000 people getting home to their families safely. What could I do all day that's more fulfilling? Right? And so anyway, they've been working on this for years, but to simplify it, basically they found that, you know, every job has three kind of elements, right? There are the tasks you're doing, which is what we all think about most probably. There are the relationships, right, with your colleagues, with your customers, the suppliers, whoever you're you're working with. And then there's the context. Right, and so again, our economy cannot support only teachers or doctors. We we need traffic cops and we need lawyers. And so how do you ladder up what you're, the tasks that you're doing every day to some larger context to find that meaning, right? And so what I see as opportunity here, why our market as in Siren Capital is people who work, right? <laughs> right? Is that everyone, is that we have found ways and there are exercises and activities and experiences that, that we're refining and other, other people out there think about of how to help people see that larger context, right? And say, you know what? Yeah, standing in traffic with gloves, people honking at me and swearing at me is kind of tough. And, well, but but the purpose is not a luxury. It's part it's of every, also, it's part of every career, and, or could be. Also, it is, exactly, I, it is not a nice to have, right? I, I argue when somebody allows me to get here and be a little bit preachy about it. It's, more, it's, it's not only a luxury, it's a personal responsibility. Right, so all of us listening to this podcast are in a position where we have access. The world has invested a lot in us, 
right, by virtue of where we were born, by our education, the people we know, whatever. Um, and so, and, and we really need us all right now, right? There are some really nasty problems out there. Um, and so to grind along at a desk job where you are disengaged and so 40% productive is, is, not honoring that investment. Is, is not honoring that investment, right? It's robbing the world of your full potential to solve something. And so maybe, maybe you can find context in your day job. Maybe it's a hobby, but you need to get there. So much for spending time with us. That's a great, a great, a great thought to end on. So welcome, Michael. Really fun. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. We'd love to stay connected. So follow us on Twitter at Timshell or visit us at Timshell.com. Until next time.